Well, let me uh, turn us to our passage today. In Philippians 3, if you could open your Bibles to Philippians 3, that is where our, our text that we're going to be studying today is found. In particular, we're going to be studying, starting in verse 7, but for context's sake, I want to start in verse 1. And let me read this text for us. <clears throat> Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I might, that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let me pray for us before we get started. Heavenly Father, Father, would you magnify your Son in our midst today? Would you help us in our time together to make much of Jesus Christ? I pray, Lord, that you would soften the hearts of every person in this room, that you would give them an attentive mind, not given to wandering, but given to the Word of God, that we wouldn't just be simply hearers of the Word of God, but doers of the Word of God pray that the Spirit would convict our hearts and add illumination to our minds to help us understand these truths. <clears throat> Give us faithfulness as we exercise faith. And help me, O oh God, to rightly divide the word of truth. Give me the ability, O oh God, to magnify Christ as he ought to be magnified in such a weak vessel. We thank you, Lord, for your grace in giving us your word. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 The title of my sermon, you may be seated. The title of my sermon is The Glorious Testimony of the Conversion of Paul. 
And what I want to explore with you today is the testimony of one particular man in his head-on collision with the living, raised, and reigning Lord, Jesus Christ. And at the outset of our time today, I want to ask you a question. When did, when did you have a life-changing, life-forsaking confrontation with the living Christ? I could ask the same question another way. When was your second birth? And by that I mean since your first birth was defiled with sin, Jesus Christ said that if you would enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And every sinner who has ever been saved knows exactly what I'm talking about. They've experienced the new birth. They've experienced the second birth. And every sinner who has ever been saved from the guilt and power of their sins has experienced the saving work of God wrought about in and applied to their souls. And having received forgiveness and pardon from their sins, they can testify about the salvation that comes from God through Jesus Christ. And my question is to you is, can you testify to that grace? And what I love about this text is not, uh, not only does it describe in such vivid details that the testimony of, of Paul's conversion, but it also establishes what a testimony is. I wanted to look at that with you today. <clears throat> but a testimony, as we will see in this text, is primarily composed of three main components. A testimony includes a past, a present, and a future. It includes who you were before Christ, uh, what happened when you met Christ, and what your life looks like now as you are walking with Christ. And though the testimony of every believer uh, might contain different details, Every true testimony contains the same outline. It all has the same structure. Everyone in here, if you claim to know Jesus Christ, you have a past, a present, and a future. You have who you used to be, who you, who you were when you met Jesus Christ, and who you are as you're walking with Him. And so, <clears throat> that said, we'll keep going. I wanted to find the first part. Every believer has had a BC life. And by that I mean a life before Christ. In this component of their testimony, they can recall when they were not in Christ, but outside of Christ. A, a time when they were not alive in righteousness, but dead in their sins and trespasses. When they were not walking in the light of God's dreadful holiness, but in the darkness of their minds and souls. You and I were living to ourselves at one point, completely cut off from the life of God, committing all kinds of evil, celebrating our love for sin, our lustful appetites, loving drunkenness, com committing fornication, which is sex outside of uh, sex outside of marriage, adultery, whether it be spiritual or physical. Spewing blasphemy and worshiping and admiring everything but our supremely and precious Christ. Together we were children of wrath and on our way to hell. This describes a life of someone who does not know the Lord in a saving way. 
They may know things about God and stories uh, about the Bible, uh, but they do not know intimately the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the past life. This is the old life, our life before Christ. Uh, The second part of a Christian's testimony, it describes what happened when you were shaken by God and awakened from your spiritual slumber. It describes what happened when you met Christ, your current circumstances, the decision of your will to leave your life in a moment of time, to altogether forsake your sins in order that you might cling to the Savior. This was the most critical And crucial point in time when the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to your heart and gripped your soul through his word and commanded you to die to yourself, to leave your life never to return, and to follow after the King of glory himself. This is the moment when you stepped out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. When you repented, and by faith trusted wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ's ability to deliver you from the powerful bonds of sin, to grant you forgiveness of all your sins and treason against a fearfully holy God, and to save you from the everlasting punishment of divine justice, which is surely coming upon those who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, after conversion and union with Christ, the believer begins to live his life in fellowship with God all the days of his life. Their life is never the same. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come or all things are made new. Their life is forever altered. If you're in Christ, your life is forever altered. And who they used to be is dead. Who you used to be is dead, never to reappear again. Though you may sin, you do not fall back into slavery and bondage to sin. Since being changed by the transforming power and work of the Spirit of God, the believer is enabled to live a victorious life that ever reflects the life of God, the righteousness of God. The believer is enabled to live a victorious life. Sin no longer has its grip on them. Their desire for righteousness continues to grow as they are being conformed into the image of Christ. And by faith they hold on to Jesus Christ as he preserves their soul until the end. And these are the three necessary components of a believer's testimony, and you must have all three to be a Christian. In fact, as we, as we are about to see, that these are discernible points in the text that we are about to study. And not even in this one, but in, in one of the shortest summaries of Paul's testimony. We find that in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. That I that he's referring to is who he used to be. And the life which I now live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we see in this short testimony, the mention of Paul before the cross, Paul at the cross, and Paul after the cross. We see Paul and his old man. We see Paul, his old man being crucified, and Paul living, or rather Christ living in Paul after his salvation. And so I wanted to get started with our text, beginning in verse 2 in Philippians 3. I wanted to read this for you. He says, beginning in verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I might, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." So what's going on in the church of Philippi? The situation was very similar to what we see going on in Galatia. Your brother talked about this morning, uh, but probably with less sway. The Philippians weren't uh, given so hardly to um, the distortion of this of of this false gospel, of what was trying to uh, permeate the the walls of the church of Philippi. But what you have here is evil, false Jewish teachers that were teaching that if Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they must also maintain, observe, and obey the law, namely, or more specifically, that they must be circumcised if they were going to be acceptable to God. Uh, These Judaizers were constantly undermining the authority of Paul's apostleship uh, and the gospel message that he was uh, trying to proclaim and trying to build up in all the churches. Paul was proclaiming Jesus Christ alone, while the Judaizers were proclaiming Jesus Christ plus something, plus works, plus circumcision. And so what is Paul's problem with this distortion of the gospel? It teaches this, that salvation is based on works. And that salvation is based on man's observance to the law. It was by, it was, they were teaching it was not by faith, but it was by flesh. And it was carnal. It absolutely had no power to save what these men were teaching. And this is what Paul is combating. The nature of the message that these Judaizers were bringing to the church was not of God. It had no power to save. And it left you in your flesh instead of in the spirit of God. These false teachers taught that because they were circumcised and following the law, they must be doing what was acceptable to God. Uh, this is why in Philippians, why he calls them uh, the, this, the false circumcision. Uh, what he calls them, the beware of the evil workers, beware of the dogs, that these people who were uh, distorting the gospel message. They were putting confidence in their flesh uh, after their accomplishment of being circumcised. And Paul's reaction to this was simply, in refutation to this, is we are the true circumcision 
who worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And what about you, brothers and sisters, friends and family? Where is your confidence this afternoon? Is it in your own works and the life that you've made for yourself or is your confidence in God? And let me just tell you what the Bible says. It says that the Lord detests and absolutely abhors the man or woman who would exalt themselves on the basis of their own accomplishments. And he detests this because they will not boast in the cross. They will boast in themselves. And ask yourself this this afternoon. Do you seek to be the center of attention wherever you go? Do you seek glory from others? Are you obsessed with yourself? The Lord explicitly commands that this attitude and lifestyle must die if you would be saved. If you put confidence in your own works, how can you glory in the works of, and salvation of Jesus Christ? To put confidence in the flesh is to, by default, reject glorying and boasting in the Lord. You cannot do both. You can only do one or the other. In fact, Paul goes on to say that he used to put confidence in his flesh. And not only did he do this, but he says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And so what was his confidence? We see, we see here who Paul was in his flesh. <clears throat> what we have in this verse. He goes on and says, as his first mark that he was circumcised the eighth day. This was a command given to Abraham, actually, in Genesis 17.12. And also another time repeated in Leviticus 12.3. Paul was circumcised on the exact day. So if Paul could glory or boast or have any confidence in himself, speaking to people who would try to be justified, he's saying, I have the most confidence in who I used to be over and against any of the people who would oppose him. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was circumcised on the exact day, the day that God commanded for him to be circumcised, not after or later as a convert, which is what the Jewish people wanted, wanted the Gentiles to do, to be circumcised as, as, as they were converted to, uh, to Christianity by upholding this aspect of the law. He was born and brought up in, in the Jewish religion and observed its ordinances immediately after he had come out of the womb. This is an argument I, that I used to make. Uh, namely, that since I was baptized as a child, I must be saved now and, and accepted by God. And this is the error of the Roman Catholic Church, as well as many others who believe that just by merely conforming to a standard of, uh, of rituals, you can become right with God. But uh, Paul will go on to say that none of these things command, commended him in the sight of God. <clears throat> none of these things made him more acceptable to God. Uh, not only this, but he was of the nation of Israel. This describes Paul's privileges as a Jew from birth. His heritage as a child. He was not born of the Gentiles, but of God's chosen people. 
nor was he a Gentile become Jew. He was of the nation of Israel. And not only this, but he was also of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only was Paul an Israelite, but he was of one of the choicest tribes of God. Benjamin was a child of Rachel who was married to Jacob. Out of the 12 patriarchs of Israel, he alone was born in the promised land. And it was from this tribe that Israel received her first king, who was also named Saul. And this is no doubt where Saul of Tarsus got his name from King Saul that we read of in Samuel. And Benjamin was a tribe that was consistently faithful to God among all other tribes. Not only this, but he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Pure Jewishness was running through Paul's veins. He came from a long and pure line of Hebrews, unmixed with Gentile blood. His parents were Hebrews. They observed the law. They spoke the language. And some of you were brought up in a Christian home. But that doesn't somehow uh, give you the advantage or an advantage in the eyes of God. Someone might say that I was born a Christian. I have been a Christian since birth. My parents were Christians. But what does the Bible say about this, saints? Are all people children of God at birth? Absolutely not. That's what the Bible says. Uh, One becomes a child of God, not when they are born of the flesh, but when they are born of God. When they are born again is what the Bible says. And these are the privileges. So Paul had all of these things, and he says, he says, I still didn't know God. And after this, he says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. Even their name denotes the idea of, of being a spiritual leader in Israel. The name Pharisee literally means the separated ones. So as to the law, Saul or Paul was separated to God. Uh, to keep the whole law, to master it, to be trained by it. Uh, this was the point of Paul's life. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of the Father. That's what Acts 22, 3 says. He was a son of Pharisees. He was of the strictest sect of the religious Judaism, of the religion of Judaism. Sorry, Acts 26, 5. And as to the law, Paul could say, tell me something I don't know. That's what he could say. As to zeal, which is referring to Paul's passion, he was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous for God, just as the rest of the Pharisees were, who persecuted the way, which is Christ and those who belong to Christ. He persecuted them to death by binding them and putting both men and women into prison. Paul, though deceived, was was very zealous of the things of God. As Psalm 69, 9 says, zeal for your house will consume me. And this, what, what, this is what Paul was declaring when he's talking about his testimony that we're just reading of. He is speaking about the fire that he had in him to do what he thought was pleasing to God. And I know of no better and more literal uh, fulfillment of what Jesus said than of what was true of Paul's life. 
Jesus says that they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That's John 16, too. Was this not Saul's life before he was saved by Christ? Imagine Saul. He would come through these doors here and grab you, lay hold of you, and take you out, and bind you up and take you out to the streets. Is what he was doing to Christians when he would come in there. That he would violently come in and take these people out of the synagogue. This describes Paul's zeal. And as to the law, he was found blameless. So as Paul discerns for himself as to his outward obedience to the law, he could testify that he was not guilty of breaking any of it. He said he was blameless. Though deceived, he loved his religion with all of his heart. This was Paul's life before Christ. I mean, what else could be added to it? He just gave you the perfect resume of a Jew, of a Hebrew, of Hebrews. If any Jew was complete in the eyes of God and man, it was Saul of Tarsus. And these things, what he goes on to say, these things were absolutely gained to Paul. Um, Paul had no liabilities. All you heard were just great thing after great thing after great thing. So he thought he had only assets. Uh, nothing to be ashamed of, but everything to commend himself in the eyes of God. Uh, Paul, uh, his resume, it, it, it excluded him for the need of a savior. Uh, that's why he was running the way that he was. And so what we do see also is Paul's attitude, which is very much the same in our own land. <clears throat> you hear this all over the place. Uh, people will give you a resume if you go up to them and ask them for their salvation. Uh, maybe maybe they, they've never been saved before, but you ask them, what is your testimony? And they start giving you a list of things that they've done. But that isn't a testimony. That's of the flesh, right? They might say to you, uh, I read my Bible. I was baptized. I pray every day. I, I, I go to church. I pay my tithes. I give them my money. I'm good. I'm totally good. Their, res- their resume is all about themselves. It's all of the flesh. And this is Paul's response uh, before radically being saved by Christ. He had everything to commend him to God. Imagine the best person in, on, in this, on this planet, except the Lord Jesus Christ, giving you the best possible resume and God saying that they are robed with filthy garments. In their best righteousness, they are robed with filthiness before God. It's an incredible thing. And that's what we come to realize as we get to know God and the holiness of God, is that he is utterly different from us. And so what did Paul's conversion look like? We find this in Acts 9. If you want to turn there, you can. In Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1, in Acts chapter 9, it says this, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's, this was the name that Christ gave to himself in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That if anyone belongs to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened. Isn't that what salvation often looks like? It doesn't say that Paul was seeking God, but rather God was seeking Paul. That's what we see in this text, that God was seeking Paul. The Bible says that prior to salvation, no one seeks for God. Absolutely no one seeks for God. Uh, But this is an accurate assessment of the salvation that God brings upon a sinner. It truly is. One day, God saved me. One day, God saved me. Nothing that you can account for of anything that you did. Your salvation is completely credited to God. And if you're saved, you know that's true. You know that's true. That that sums up true salvation. It is not of you, but of God. That is true salvation. Uh, John 1.13 declares this, If you indeed have received Jesus Christ... As Savior and Lord, you did not do that by your own strength. But if you have been born again, it was not of the blood, is what it says, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does this mean? What John is saying is that you're not a Christian by blood because of the family you were born in, because your family is Christians. You're not a Christian because of them. Uh, Nor is it the will of your flesh. Uh, Your flesh does not naturally desire the things of God, uh, the salvation of God, deliverance from sin. Your flesh does not want that, does not desire that. And nor is it the will of man. It is not within man's power to choose God. You need to understand that. It is not within your power to choose God. This is impossible in man. But that which is impossible with man is possible with God. This is possible with God. <clears throat> Truly is. And so we are enabled by God's enabling us <clears throat> uh, to start following after him. And this is what happened to Paul. We see him going back to that text and as he was traveling, it happened, right? Uh, Just the glorious radiance of Jesus Christ, it burst on the scene. It truly did. The blinding light of the glory of God shined in the darkness of Paul, illuminating the heart and mind of Paul. And what happened to Paul? He fell off his horse and he was humbled under the mighty hand of God. And it goes on as he was traveling. It happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he goes on to answer his own question. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told what you must do. Incredible. Completely remarkable. It was at this point that Saul, the false convert of Judaism, 
was converted to the true religion of God and became the man who now goes by the name Paul. Remarkable. This man went from being on a mission of God to being confronted with the reality that he was an enemy of God. Incredible. He's thinking he's doing service to God and Jesus Christ in his blinding glory stops him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Incredible. He thought he was a friend of God and he was his enemy. And this is why John can say, the Apostle John, that if you hate the church of Jesus Christ, which Paul did, then you do not know Jesus Christ. That if you've committed a crime against the member of a body of Christ, a Christian, then you've committed a crime against Jesus Christ himself. And if you have not repented of those crimes and have been saved, then you are in big trouble. Because you will have to deal with God on the day of judgment. But as for Paul, he won't have to. Having been freed from the condemnation of sin through the atoning work of Jesus Christ for Paul. And through his experience, Paul realized that everything in which he had confidence in no longer counted in the eyes of God. It was of the flesh and worthless. All of those things are worthless in the eyes of God. What a resume. What a pedigree. And it's all loss. Everything that Paul worked for from the eighth day until his life. Remarkable. But Paul can now say in truth, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh after having been saved. And we are called to do so as Paul did. We are called to follow Paul in abandoning whatever confidence you might have in yourself. And so this is Paul at conversion. I'm in verse 7 now. So this was, we were just recapping on who Christ was before conversion. Getting into verse 7, we're going to talk about who Christ was at conversion. He goes on to say in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever was or is your profit is now loss. I don't care if you've been reading the Bible your whole life. You've been praying to God every day. Uh, You've been going to church relentlessly. Uh, You've been just giving all this money. Uh, But if your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life and you're not truly walking in the Spirit of God and having been uh, conformed to the image of Christ by going down in the likeness of His death, if you have not died with Christ, if you have not come in, in union and experienced union with Christ... Everything that you've been doing up to this point is worthless. It has no value. It has absolutely no value. We must completely renounce 
our detestable and false boasting in who we are or what we are or what we've done. As Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord, that he understands me and knows me. Do you boast in that? Are you boasting in that? That you know and understand God? This is the pinnacle of salvation that you, that you see in the Bible. That's what Jesus said in, in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know God? That is eternal life. And we have nothing to boast of if you are valuing something else other than Jesus Christ. And so back in Philippians, we'll turn back there and look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Notice the tense of the verb. It is in the past tense. I have counted. Everything that Paul counted as his benefit in his former life, as that which was his, uh, his profit, that which was his advantage, at his conversion, which happened in the past, he counted as utter loss so that he might gain Christ. Christ is utterly more valuable than all of those things. Than all of those things. So that Paul would thoroughly be saved. Thoroughly be saved. He gave up all things. He counted all things as loss. And of those old things which Paul, which Paul used to trust in, in that verse, how great, or consider the opposite of the truth that we were just considering. How great would Paul's loss have been if he would have held on to those things and lost Christ? It would have ended in eternal misery and emptiness. That's where Paul would have found himself. And going on from the seventh verse to verse eight, we see that he transitions from this verse to the next verse, from seven to eight, going from a past tense to a present tense verb when speaking about the things that he had counted for loss. Verse 8 says, more than that. So not just those initial things, but all things he counts as rubbish, as loss, as dung. Whatever contends for the lordship and reign of Christ in your heart and in your life. So why all things and not just some things? What motivated Paul to cast his life and his earthly attainments aside? It was for the purpose of the excellency and the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ as Lord. 
And notice the tense in this verse in this, in, in this time. We just looked at the past. This is a present tense. So not just I counted, but I count. This is not speaking of a time when Paul met Christ, but after he met Christ. This is speaking on the, of the ongoing relationship that Paul experienced with the living Lord Jesus Christ. He still does not risk resting his eternal undying soul on any of these things that cannot make him right with God. So not only at one time did he give them up, but he still does not trust them. He stays away from those things. He didn't just at one point say, I I counted all these things as loss, but I count them all as loss. I want nothing to do with them. Especially in the realm when it comes to his justification. So just not just whatever was to your profit. So we just saw in verses 5 through 6, he was speaking about all of these religious attainments. But now he goes on to say, more than that, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Incredible. So at one point it was just these prior things, but he says more than that, and now it's everything in comparison to God is meaningless and has no value if you are not saved, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord. The value and the point of Paul's life can be summed up in one verse. For to me, to live is Christ. In essence, he says, that is my banner that I fly over my life. What do you value in your life? Would you trade it all for Jesus Christ? Have you traded it all for Jesus Christ? Have you traded it all for Jesus Christ? And I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. Whether it be money, material possessions, whether it be honor, acceptance, status, your comfort. Are you willing to give these things up that you might gain Christ? Is it your own righteousness that you're holding on to? Because that which one finds in outer conformity to some religious standard is referred by Paul as total garbage. It's absurdity compared to the knowledge which is found in Jesus Christ. Do you think your righteousness will save you? Even this, among other things, among other things, Paul did, uh, did Paul consider to be what the Greek calls scubala. You know what that means? It means that he considered his righteousness as street filth, as dung. He not only counted his own righteousness as loss, but rubbish. Rotten manure and dung. 
And that is what, who, this is a question I want to ask you. Who in their right mind would pick up their dung and give it to God? But that's exactly what you're trying to do when you cling to your own righteousness to be accepted before God. That's exactly what you're trying to do when you treasure your own righteousness and not the righteousness that comes from God by faith. And so not only did Paul consider this to be true at conversion, but he also did the same after conversion. So we've looked at who Paul was before conversion. We've looked at who Paul was at conversion and we're looking at Christ, at who Paul was after conversion. He moves from works righteousness, what he was once holding on to, that could not save him. It could not commend him before God. He was not acceptable to God. It was worthless. It had no value in it whatsoever. And so he gave those things up that he might receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. And so there's no hope of gaining a right standing before God by your own works. You have no hope of doing that. And the aim of this life is to know and be conformed to Jesus Christ by faith. Is this your aim? Is that your aim? Or are you just going through the motions of being religious? Do you truly know God? Can you confess that? That's what Psalms 51 says, that God desires truth in the inward parts. And can you confess and do you adhere and hold to the truth that you know Jesus Christ by faith and that you're not clinging to your own works? Do you know what your aim should be? Your aim should be the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, you shouldn't aim at knowing just some things about Christ, but everything about Christ. You should want to know all things about Christ. Uh, this, this is what Paul wants you to do. He wants you to follow him who wanted to know the excellent knowledge that transcends all knowledge. The knowledge of Jesus Christ, the, the knowledge about the Savior that is most appropriate for perishing sinners. The knowledge of God's glorious Christ that is able to make dumb sinners wise unto salvation. Oh, my friends, you must count all things as loss so that Jesus Christ might be yours and that you might be his. Consider this. Consider the consequences, my friends, of neglecting so great a salvation. Richard Baxter, in a book called A Call to the Unconverted, he said this, So exceedingly great are the matters of eternity that nothing in this world deserves even once to be named in comparison with them. Nor can any earthly thing, even if it were life or crowns or kingdoms, ever be a reasonable excuse for the neglect of matters so high as an everlasting consequence. A man can have no reason to neglect his ultimate end. Heaven is such a thing that if you lose it, nothing can supply the want or make up the loss. 
And hell is such a thing that if you suffer it, nothing can remove your misery or give you ease, peace, or comfort. And therefore, nothing can be a valuable consideration to excuse you for neglecting your own salvation. Let us consider these things and examine ourselves on this day and pray for us. Father in heaven, oh God, that you would truly, by your spirit, apply these things to our souls, that you would take the things of Christ and show them to our souls with great power and great conviction that anyone in here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ might come to a saving relationship and knowledge of your dear Son who has come to reconcile the world and perishing sinners to Himself through the cross. Oh, would you do this great thing as saving just one sinner? Oh, it is a great thing. We are so fallen and dead in sins and trespasses. God, that you would apply this salvation and redemption to one soul in here tonight. Oh, it is possible with you. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for your the glorious gospel of your dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.